uh, tonight at the first two verses of Jeremiah, sorry, the 22 verses in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. So it'd be a great help to me if you would have uh, those two verses before you. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you call on us to boast, but to boast in you. And Lord, we pray that you would so work affection for our Lord Jesus in our hearts tonight, that he alone would be the subject of our boasting. And we ask this for his great name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in an article about social media called Are We All Braggarts Now? Elizabeth Bernstein made an appeal to her friends, her family, and her co-workers. She writes, I think you're fabulous. Just not as fabulous as you think you are. She then reports what are apparently some of their Facebook status updates. Quote, best gift ever from the best husband ever. Another one, swam 30 minutes at a very fast time despite the large amount of Chardonnay served to me on the plane last night. Bernstein comments... Clearly, the internet has given us a global audience for our bombast, and social media sites encourage it. We're all expected to be perfect all the time. The result is more people carefully stage managing their online image. Now, ironically, she or someone at the newspaper, her article is here, and there's a little call-out box that says, and I'm quoting, Shine without being a braggart. Now, the tips are, for our purposes, ludicrous. I can't decide whether or not the secular publication is so divorced from Christian values that it actually thinks that this is good advice, or whether they just threw it in there as a joke. Well, anyway, there, there are five kinds of ways to shine without being a braggart, but I'll give you just two. Couch it in a compliment. It's wonderful how your son made it through the grueling process to get into Brown. I remember when Junior was filling out the forms for the Rhodes Scholarship. Or you could try the humble brag. <sighs> Who knew the most exhausting part of climbing Everest was that flight back from Kathmandu. That's right, 
the humble brag. And, and I think if we, if we reflect back on the past year, 2013, we will be able to recall to our mind with sufficient clarity enough moments of our own humble bragging. Or, if we're honest about it, our, our outright, outright crowing, right, about our glorious successes. Indeed, when I told my wife that I was thinking of doing a two-part series on boasting, her reply was simply, that will be good for you. <laughs> and she's right. And I think that this two-part series will actually be good for all of us. You know, the way that dental surgery can be. Now, we don't, though we don't need scientists to confirm it, in a recent study, uh, these scientists concluded that 40% of what we talk about daily is ourselves. Occasionally, we mention sports or politics or maybe even the people that we're talking to. But my favorite topic is me. And your favorite topic is you. In this particular study, uh, Diana Tamir said that people were even willing to forego money in order to talk about themselves. They did these experiments where if you didn't talk about yourself, you would get money. And people would rather just talk about themselves than be paid to be quiet. Now, in the face of our obsession with ourselves, one clear implication of Jeremiah chapter 9 is that we ought to be obsessed about the Lord and said. But I'll be honest with you that that is not why I have been laboring under a great burden of conviction this week. It's easy to say, yes, I need to talk about myself less and the Lord more. But what's truly convicting is when we start to reflect on why it is that we boast. Our boasting tells us about our identities and about our hopes. Our boasting points to who we think we are and where we think our help comes from. Think about it. You boast about a good business deal? Well, what are you saying? You're saying that you see yourself as a good businessman. And when trouble comes, you'll be able to work your way out of it. You boast about your children's athletic or academic performance. You're saying that you're a good mother or a good father and that whatever else happens in this life, you have them to cling to. But there are two dangers here. The first, of course, is if we find our identity anywhere apart from the Lord, if we place our hope in anything else but Him, then we will ultimately be disappointed. Business deals will go bad. Our children will disappoint us, etc. But there's a second danger that's even worse than the first. And its reality is too horrific to contemplate. But that's that we may actually be so content with our own wisdom, might, and wealth that we lose the Lord that we forget about him altogether, that we live a life without reference to him. And people who are so well situated deserve 
are fervent prayers because they are in a miserable position. They ought to be trembling before the judgment seat of Christ, but instead they are blind to their spiritual condition and satisfied with their own lives. So just so we're clear, I don't think we should try to shine without being a braggart. I think instead we ought to think hard about the passage before us and to see how differently we ought to live, speak, and think. Now I have four main headings tonight. We have in this passage false boasting, true boasting, the content of our boasting, and the reason for our boasting. So false boasting, true boasting, the content of our boasting, and the reason for our boasting. So in Jeremiah chapter 9, first we have a series of identities and hopes that we shouldn't boast about. Now notice, if you look down in the passage, it doesn't say, let not the foolish man boast in his wisdom, the weakling in his might, let not the pauper boast in his riches. But it's the wise man, the mighty man, the rich man. These people are tempted to boast in wisdom, might, and riches precisely because they are to some degree those things. Now, let's set the context of the passage uh, for Jeremiah's own day. Jeremiah is telling God's people that they are going to be carried away into captivity. Judgment is coming because they have wronged the Lord for generations. And so now the time of judgment has come. Well, if you're faced with an enemy invader, a military force, what do you do? Well, if you turn to yourself, it's a big mistake, but if you look to yourself, then what do you trust? Perhaps you count on your wisdom. You think by uh, insight into what the enemy wants will enable me to carefully outmaneuver him in negotiations. I will, through my words and wisdom, secure a peace for my country. Now, if that fails, then you turn to your might. You turn to the battlefield. Fine. If we're going to war, we're going to beat them on the open playing field. But if defeat looks inevitable, then you think to yourself, well, maybe I can buy my way out of this mess. And that's precisely what uh, the, the people were doing. And Jeremiah the prophet has none of it. He'll have none of it at all. He tells them not to trust in themselves, but instead to boast in the Lord God Almighty. Let's consider each thing in turn. First, God is not against, uh, against wisdom. If you read Proverbs, like Proverbs 8, for example, God is both wisdom and the one who gives wisdom. But having given us wisdom, he expects us not to trust in the wisdom that he gives us, but in himself alone. Think of King Solomon, David's son, who was given wisdom by God directly, but nevertheless pursued false gods, the false gods of his many wives, as we read in 1 Kings 11 and Nehemiah 13. So to whatever extent God has given us wisdom, we ought to be grateful 
But we must focus our hearts on him. And we must employ the wisdom that he gives us in his service. And we ought to discipline ourselves from the temptations of the world in a way that Solomon didn't. In order to use our wisdom for the Lord. So that's wisdom. Well, what about might? God, of course, is not against power. God wields all the power that there is in this universe and beyond. But God says, don't look to your own strength. Don't look to your own power, skills, ability, or your social influence. Just don't do it. We actually have a positive model in this in David, the shepherd boy, who went out onto the open field and met the bigger, stronger, more heavily equipped Goliath. And David's concern, if you remember, was the Lord, the, the glory of the Lord. He says to people by the battle line, um, you know, how can, a, how can an uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? And when David approaches Goliath, he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And we know that it wasn't a good day for Goliath. So God's not against your strength. He gave it to you. But he wants you to find your identity and your hope, not in the strength that he gives you, but in him. Finally, don't boast in your riches. Now, God's not against wealth. We see the Old Testament saints flourishing and prospering, and we see uh, rich New Testament saints too. But we must remind ourselves that God is not concerned with riches. After all, when the God of the entire universe, when the God of the entire universe came to earth, he chose a peasant girl betrothed to a carpenter to be his mother. So we don't boast in things, even though the Lord's given us them. Now, here's one test of your heart. And this is the dental surgery. When you're left alone to your thoughts, to what does your mind turn? You know, if, if you have a resting state mentally, what consumes your thoughts? Think about it. The upcoming move, the new job, the lost job, how well the kids are doing, why little Junior was mean to his sister at breakfast, what we're going to have for dinner tomorrow, what she said to you. Did he really mean that? How am I going to respond to that email? Did we pay that bill? Will I ever repair that part of the sheetrock by the back door? That's actually a true one, and it's, it's mine. And I imagine we could group all of our thoughts into wisdom, might, and riches. Into our mental effort, our productivity, and our resources. And when times are good, we exult in these things. And when times are bad, 
we look to them for answers. I'll figure out what to say. I'll just work harder. We'll borrow the money. And again, we do have to think about these things, right? We do have to think about, did I pay the bill? Did I lock the door? But all too often, our identities and our hopes are wrapped up in these things and not in the one who gave us them. And that's a mistake. And it's a mistake, again, I want to emphasize this in at least two ways. First, it's a mistake because when we idolize these things, they will ultimately disappoint us. But second, and even more dreadfully, if we are content in these things, then we lose out on the Lord, which is even worse. So let's rid ourselves, friends, of false boasting, and let's be aware that, that not boasting in wisdom, might, and riches means more than simply talking about them less, though it certainly means that too. But it means not finding our identities in these things, not placing our hopes in these things, but in our Lord Jesus. So that's the first point. Let's get rid of false boasting. But notice that the passage doesn't say get rid of boasting altogether. Let's be clear. This is a pro-boasting sermon. In the passage, we are called to boast. And we're called to boast about two things. That we understand the Lord and that we know the Lord. Let's take these in turn. The word here, understand, means insight, wisdom, and even skill. It's used in 1 Chronicles 28.19, for example, when uh, David is explaining how God made him understand the requirements for building the temple. The ESV actually translates, the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, actually translates David's words as, follow, as follows. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to the plan. So that word clear there is understanding. Uh, and we ought to boast in the understanding, the clear insight that God has given us into who he is. God has made himself known to us generally in the world that he has made, but principally and especially in his book, the Bible. And, and think about it. If you want to if you, if you um, understand something, really understand something, you read a book about it. And you can... You can read this book to understand who God is, to understand clearly who the Lord is. But God has given us an even greater privilege than simply being able to assent to intellectual truths about who he is. He's given us the privilege of knowing him. And this word know is the word it's a, it's a broad category word. It's used for learning and visual perception. And it's also the word that's used to describe the intimate relationship of a husband and his wife. Now, in the context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is clear that the Lord's people have rejected him. And he actually uses the word no to describe that they have, in fact, rejected him. They deceive each other. They weary themselves in committing iniquity, he says, in uh, verses 5 to 6 of Jeremiah 9. 
They oppress each other. They, and by doing so, and worst of all, the Lord says, they refuse to know me. They refuse to have an intimate relationship with me. But of course, Jeremiah looks forward to the day told to him by the Lord when, as Jeremiah 31, 34 says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, how can God do this great work? Jeremiah prophetically announces the coming of the one called the righteous branch. Someone who's coming to execute justice and righteousness in the land. Chapter 23, verse 5. And this one who's coming is a shepherd after God's own heart. Jeremiah 3.15, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And of course, the shepherd has come. He is our Lord Jesus, whose arrival on earth we celebrated this past week. So we boast, we ought to boast, let us boast in our insight into his character and our intimate knowledge of him. Now, Thinking about this, we have to ask ourselves whether or not we work the Lord Jesus into conversations as easily as we do ourselves. And it's curious, isn't it, when you, you, you may feel sheepish sometimes, boasting in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, and we may think, well, I, I don't want to offend. I don't want the conversation to become awkward. But, of course, we're not so cautious talking about ourselves. Am I the only one? Who has actually said or thought, but of course I'm extrovert, so I say everything. Look, I don't care whether or not you're even interested. I'm going to tell you this good news. Now, when we say those things, sadly, we're probably not talking about the Lord. Instead, we're talking about ourselves. So let's boast in the Lord. Let's be focused on thinking about how to work him into conversations, his achievements, who he is, and not who we are and what we've done. Now, what should we say? That's the next question, and the passage answers it for us. If you look down, it gives us the subject of our boasting, the, the Lord, and the content of our boasting. We are to boast in the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Now, the word steadfast love here can refer to the kindness we, uh, we show each other. Boaz thanks Ruth for her kindness, her steadfast love to him, and recognizing him as someone she could marry rather than the younger men. But it's three times more likely in Scripture to refer to God's own kindness, his own always and forever love towards his people or to humanity. When the Lord reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, we read that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in 
steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord identifies himself as the one who overflows in steadfast love. And we ought to praise him for it. So that's steadfast love. Now, justice is a term from the law court. It can mean uh, uh, the, the judgment that settles disputes. When Abraham intercedes for the wicked city of Sodom, for example, he cries out to the Lord in Genesis chapter 18, saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, the Lord does what is just, just different. He does a thing different from what Abraham had anticipated. But it's from his justice that he destroys the wicked city of Sodom. And God must appropriately, rightly, and fairly deal with wrongdoing. Now, when my Scottish pagan ancestors were, uh, before they were Christianized, they would have been horrified, I imagine, at a God who showed steadfast love. Uh, Where the Romans could actually conquer the uh, people who follow these Celtic religions, they actually brought civilization. I mean, as Christians, we think of the Romans as pagans, but... You know, they were kind of gentle people compared to my ancestors, right? The Romans actually outlawed human sacrifice and headhunting. So the idea of a God who's merciful, a God who shows steadfast love, who'd want to worship that God? But in our day and age, people's sensibilities are offended when we talk about a God of justice. Oh, steadfast love. That's pleasant. I'm all for it. But what's really offensive to our culture is the idea that the Lord would punish wrongdoers. And let's be clear, Christianity isn't a religion that says that we have to exalt, rejoice in the suffering that people endure in hell. But it most certainly is a religion that demands that we praise the justice of God in sending wicked people to hell. So instead of being apologetic about hell in this day and age, I think we ought to remember that the question is whether or not God will be just in the face of sin. And the answer from scripture is clear. Yes, the Lord is and the Lord will be just. So let's boast in his steadfast love and in his justice and finally his righteousness. Now, righteousness concerns general behavior. Uh, it's to, be, to be righteous is to be clear of ethical wrongdoing. The Lord is innocent of wrongdoing. But it also means to be exceedingly virtuous. The Lord has, uh, is morally excellent in every way imaginable. And in um, Leviticus 19.36, so, so it's a broad concept, but it's very precise. In Leviticus 19.36, the people are commanded to have just weights and measures. So they're supposed to have measures and scales of righteousness, which shows us that even though it's this broad moral category, moral goodness, it's very precise. It's very particular. So when you're, you're buying your wheat, you don't want it to be, you know, 5, 10, 20 pounds either way. You want it to be as exact as possible. So the Lord's righteousness is a broad moral category, but it's very exacting. And let's be clear, God's people lack righteousness. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 9, we read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land, the land that in Jeremiah they're about to be kicked out of. The Lord's not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So no wonder then, when we think about the justice and righteousness of the Lord, our hearts immediately turn, or should turn, to his steadfast love. We should find our identities in and hope in the righteousness and justice of the Lord given to us by the Lord Jesus because of his steadfast love for us, wicked though we are. So let's not boast in our own wisdom, might, or riches, but let's boast that God graciously gives us the privilege of understanding and knowing him, the one who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Now, very quickly, what's the reason for our boasting? It's clear in the text. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The passage makes it clear. The praise of his people pleases our heavenly king. So Redeemer Presbyterian Church, friends, visitors, God delights to hear your praise. The great God of the universe rejoices to hear your feeble attempts at praising him for who he is. So give him your praise. Boast in the Lord. Well, let's do this now by praying to him. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. You are the Lord, the one true God over all creation, the one who loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of your steadfast love. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for loving us with an everlasting love. And we praise you, our great and good Lord Jesus, for your kindness to us, your willingness to suffer punishment in our place. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for working faith in us in spite of ourselves to the praise of your glorious grace. And we ask, precious Lord, that you would work in us that which is pleasing to you, that you would set our identities and set our hopes on you alone, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this for your great name's sake. Amen. Amen.